We are in our Advent season, our first Advent season, praise God, and Advent is a time of preparation for the Christmas event when the forces of light invaded the forces of darkness, as we talked about last week. Time to meditate on the mystery of the Incarnation. Last week we looked at, at who it was that came to us, and today we're going to look at the human side of the equation We're going to look at what it was that God became a part of in the Incarnation. So can I please ask you to stand one more time out of respect for the reading of God's Word. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. So let's all listen intently together to the inerrant Word of God. This is from the book of Matthew, chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amminadab. And Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. This is God's inerrant word. Thanks. Praise be to God. Father, we thank you for your word and what it teaches us. Lord, I pray that you would, through your word today, that by the power of your spirit, you would help it to sink into our hearts, Lord, the reality of who you are, the truth of who you are, but also the truth of who we are and how we are able to rest in you as you show us what you have done for us, Lord. Our hearts are stony and our necks are stiff. Lord, and we so need the power of your spirit to illuminate us to your word. So we pray uh, that you would give us minds to comprehend and hearts to obey your perfect word as you beautify your afflicted ones, Lord. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I'm, I've been reading, uh, for the Christmas season, reading this book by Tim Keller called Hidden Christmas. Second chapter of the book's much of the inspiration for this sermon. And in it, Keller talks about how the genres of myth and legend and fantasy have fallen out of favor with the cultural elites because of the regressive views that they tend to portray. That they are not allowing us, they are, they're detracting from our ability to look cold, hard reality in the face and be real about the world around us. Um, there is one critical review he points out that was for at the, when the movie, the Lord of the Rings movie came out, there was a review about the book and the movie from a critic, culturally elite critic, who said that it is a book that bristles with bravado and, and yet to give into it, to cave into it, in other words, to enjoy the story and the, the principles undergirding it, to give into it betrays a reluctance to face the finer shades of life that verges on the cowardly. In other words, to believe that 
the principles that these stories tell us about the fact that there may be a hero in a quest, that there may be a battle between light and darkness, that there may be good and evil, that there may be someone who leaves security to come and rescue the one he loves. All the undergarding themes of these kind of stories, they just don't talk about real life. We've grown past that as a people. We know that that's relegated to the past, a more innocent time. And so we need to just wake up and get over it and to, to abide in those kind of stories betrays a sort of cowardice to look at life how it really is. And so he urges us to just move on, to get over it. There's no heroes. There's no happy endings. There's no good versus evil. There's just gray. And so we need to just get over it. There's nothing to see here. And of course, the Gospels get lumped in with the category or into the category of the great mythic literature from antiquity. They're just stories. They're just stories like all the other fantasies and we just need to move on. And yet for some reason, our hearts are continually drawn to these kind of stories. For some reason, we're powerfully drawn to the idea or even we have a longing, a craving, even a faint recognition that somehow... There's some truth underlaying there. We can't quite place it. Why? Why do our hearts cling to these stories about the hero that risks everyone to save the one he loves, about light battling darkness, about the stories where love is stronger than death? And this passage is going to tell us the answer to that question, and it's going to tell us a whole lot more. And so the big idea, the thesis, the one thing that Matthew wants us to know above everything else from this passage is that because the promise of salvation has come to us, we can rest assured that God is for us. Because the promise of salvation has come to us, we can rest assured that God is for us. We'll move through that one little phrase at a time. First, the promise of salvation. There's a, there's a famous story about missionaries who went to some tribal culture and they were translating the Gospel of Matthew. Um, but they were busy. They wanted to just hit the highlights, so they skipped chapter 1 altogether. And they were translating, presenting, translating, presenting. And this, this tribal culture was just was kind of like... They didn't really care. They were semi-interested in what they were saying until finally they got to the end and they were like, well, we might as well just go back and translate Matthew chapter 1. And so they did. And when they presented it to him, all of a sudden the tribe came alive because they realized, as tribal cultures do, who carry out and have meticulous records of, the ge- of their own genealogies, they recognized the fact that a genealogy meant that this was reality and not just a myth not just a legend, not just some tale that these people were telling them. When the missionaries came and they thought they were just spinning another mythology, they were like, all right, we got a million of those. Thanks, bro. And ours are better, you know, (laughs) some of them. But when they put the genealogy in there, when they understood that these were historical figures who had been traced through time, they understood that this was a real story. And then they paid attention to it. And so the story of Jesus begins in this Gospel of Matthew 
with a genealogy to show us just that, that this is not myth, but it's history. It comes first before anything else because Matthew wants us to know that the incarnation was a real and historical event. There is, most of you know, C.S. Lewis was a professor of literature, English literature at Cambridge University, who knew more about myth and legend than any one of us, than all of us combined, put together. He said this about the Gospels. He said, I've been reading poems and romances, vision literature, legends and myths all my life. I know what they are like, and I know none that are like this. Of this text, there's only two possible views. Either this is reportage, or else someone unknown writer, without known predecessor, without successor, suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic narrative. And the reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned how to read. In other words, he's saying there's only two real possibilities based on what we see in the Gospels. Either these are real stories of real events, actual reporting of facts, or there's some mystery guy that just popped into history 1,800 years before, before his time, invented the genre of historical fictional novel, and then disappeared from the, the scene of history until 1,800 years later. And that is a highly unlikely scenario. So in other words, based on the evidence, and this genealogy was showing us that these are actual historical figures. And it's not just any history, but it's the history specifically of God's promise to his people. In a big way, the story of the Bible, if you were to look at the Bible and, 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 and say to yourself, what is the linking thing between all the stories in the Bible? The Bible is a story of tracing God's promise of the Savior to come through all the generations of mankind on earth. In other words, all the big stories in the Bible are meant to show us the connection between the promise that God made to Adam and to Eve at the very beginning all the way through to its fulfillment in Jesus. When Adam and Eve sinned, when Adam and Eve sinned and they fell in the garden, God made a promise in Genesis chapter 3 to those to Adam and Eve that one of their descendants would come through their lineage that would be the savior of the world. And then that story is traced down until Noah is the last righteous man on li- alive and everything is against him. All sorts of drama and tragedy. It looks like the seed is going to fail, that God's promise is going to fail. There's only one guy left and he's surrounded and then all of a sudden God in this most miraculously and unexpected way saves the day, protects his seed and brings him into a new created world. And then from there, we take the story down until Abraham shows up. God calls Abraham, who was a pagan, moon-worshipping Gentile who had forgotten all about the promise, and God makes him a promise saying, one of your, your descendants, you're a continuation of this line, and one of your descendants is going to come, and he's going to be the savior of the world. And then that promise is continued on through. That's where Matthew picks up the story with Abraham, and then it goes into King David God reaffirms that promise to David that one of his sons will sit on the throne forever until it finally gets to Jesus. And so this genealogy is telling us, one of the main big things it's telling us, it's not just a bunch of names as we read it, but it's saying to us, this is what God has done. What he has promised, he has brought to fruition in Jesus. 
there's this great passage in this book, that book I told you about, Hidden Christmas, where Keller says, you know, he's talking about, uh, you know, fantasy and, and fairy tales and myth and legend and, and reading them to our children. And he says, what do you say when, you know, when our children ask, is this really real? And my children, I have two girls and a boy. We read to them all the time. We read them all these stories. And they always ask me that question. Daddy, are monsters really real? Are there really angels? Can people really fly? Is there really princesses? Are there castles? Is there life like that? And Keller pray, you know, raises this question. What do you say? What do you say to that? How do we answer our kids when they ask us that question? He's pointing out, what he's trying to point out is that inside every one of us, and it's super unfiltered in kids, Inside every one of us, there are these nagging and unquenchable desires that we all experience. He says, he says in the book that we have these experiences to be in touch with the supernatural, these desires, the desire to escape death, to know love that we can never lose, to not age and to realize our creative dreams, to fly, to communicate with non-human beings. These deep desires in our heart that keep coming out. Sleeping Beauty, it's a story of a sleeping enchantment that we're all under, that a noble prince comes and saves us from. Beauty and the Beast tells a story about a love that can break the beastliness that we have created in ourselves. That death should not be the end, that evil should not triumph over good. And so to answer, the answer for our kids and the answer to us is that although the facts of these fantasies aren't true, the storyline underneath them echoes and reflects the truth of an even greater story that we're all tapping into. And so we say to our kid, yes, monsters are really real and demons and angels and supernatural beings and light, and darkness, and danger, and salvation. All the great authors are drawing on what Carl Jung would call our collective archetypal knowledge of a real paradise lost, of a real hero who comes from the supernatural world to rescue his beloved, of a love that is stronger than death, and of a life and a pervasive joy that will never end. So Matthew puts this genealogy up front, this story of incarnation, to tell us, this yes, as fantastic as it sounds, the promise of salvation is really a true thing. It's real, not a fantasy. And it taps in and hits us in the heart where we know that there's somewhere that these things are true, and it's true right here. You know, I have a sad, sad story. A friend of mine, he rejects the reality of Jesus. He rejects the story of the gospel because of the similar claims of the rising and dying gods from antiquity. And it's true, there's lots of stories of gods who rise or who die and then they rise. If you really look at them, most of them, they just die and then they stay dead, but they come back in some other form or whatever. And we shouldn't really be surprised that since God gave this promise that he would bring a savior who would die and save us from our sins and resurrect 
that there would be a, a, a diversion or a dif- diffusement of that idea throughout ancient cultures. But the big difference is that uh, there's no eyewitness account of Osiris rising from the dead. It's just a myth. Taps into some reality. The big difference is that Jesus actually did it. And the genealogies help us to see that it really, really happened. The promise of salvation really happened, point one. Point two, the promise of salvation has come to us. Everyone has relatives that we're ashamed of, amen? Everybody's got the uncle that drinks a little bit too much. Everybody's got the relatives that live in a trailer in Saugus somewhere, smoke crack or whatnot. Everybody's got some relatives that we're ashamed of. And, uh, you know, it was pretty common in the ancient world, and, and it's still common for us. But that, those aren't the people that we really want to highlight on our resumes. When we talk, you know, about our families, we don't really talk about Uncle Joe first, right? Talk about other people. Can you imagine as a boy Jesus reading the stories about some of his family in the Old Testament? Look at, this is the story that, that this the genealogy that Matthew lays out here, he includes, this is all Jesus' ancestors, his family, his great, 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 great grandfathers and grandmothers. And listen, this is who he includes in the, in the story, in the list. And first in verse 3, he includes Tamar. Gives a whole bunch of detail about that. That Tamar, uh, in verse 3, in Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. It's Judah in there. Tamar was married to Judah's oldest son. He died. Judah gave him his, the next son in line. He died, which was the practice in Israel. And then uh, Tamar was supposed to get the third son in line, but Judah held him back from her and, and told her to go back to your father's house and wait till, I, till the son comes of age and then I'll give him to you. And Judah didn't come through on the promise. He basically just left her desperate and alone, unmarried, without support in this house. And eventually, in her desperation and in her fear, she decided that the best way, the best course of action was to disguise herself as a prostitute and she hid outside the city gate. And when Judah, her father-in-law, came up to shear his sheep, he saw the prostitute and solicited her. And then she became pregnant with Zerah and, uh, and Perez. The Bible. <laughs> in verse three, we all, or in verse 5, it also talks about Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute who... Uh, lived in the city of Jericho. And when God's people came to Jericho and surrounded it, they sent in two spies who somehow ended up in the brothel. You ever wonder about that one? How did the spies, instead of going about their business, what were they doing in the brothel? But yet there they were. Uh, And Rahab saw the glory of the Lord of Israel. And she told those men, I want to be with you and with your God. And she ended up being in, put into the line of Israel and made a, an ancestor of Jesus. In verse 5 also is the story of Ruth. Ruth was 
much different. She was a godly young woman, but she was a foreigner. She was a Moabitess who came into this foreign land. And finally, in verse 6, this is the best one, when it says, uh, at the very end, it says, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. We all know her name, and Matthew knew her name. Her name was Bathsheba. But he says it like this to bring out the whole sordid mess, the whole sordid story. The background of this is that, you know, we, know, we all know the story about David, that he's, you know, he's, he's on his rooftop in the summer while the troops are off to war. He's supposed to be with the troops, but he sees this beautiful girl bathing on the rooftop, and he's the king. He's the man. There's no one is going to contradict him, so he sends his people to go and get her and bring her back. And it says she's the wife of Uriah. It doesn't mean anything to us. And then he takes her for his own and she becomes pregnant. And then in order to hide the fact that she's become pregnant by him, he calls her husband back from the front line. But he's so loyal to David and to his men that he won't sleep with his wife. He says, why would I be with my wife when my, when my friends are off on the front line so he won't do it? So David eventually sends him back with orders to the captain to put him in the worst fighting and then when things get to their absolute worst to withdraw and let him be killed and he is. David murders this man. The backstory, the backstory to that is that when David, before he became king, before he came into power, he was hiding from Saul, the king of Israel, in the wilderness and he had 30 men, 30 valiant warrior men that came alongside him and supported him and defended him in the wilderness, and one of those men was Uriah the Hittite, the husband of Bathsheba. He was one of his best friends. So it's not all about the women here. It's about it, it, Matthew says it in a way that just just spreads out and just shows us the reality of sin. You know what we see here in the women, at least. We see outsiders. We see the fact that God seeks the outsider. He seeks, he goes after the lost, the people that are on the outside to bring them in. These women are gender outsiders. In patriarchal genealogies, they did not list women. They just didn't do it. The fact that Matthew has listed these women in here, showing them as outsiders that God has brought in. That is an astonishing thing that he's done. But there are also racial outsiders. In Jewish patriarchal genealogies, they did not include Gentiles. They didn't include the goyim, which is a pleasant Hebrew word that implies that the nations are like cattle. (laughs) And yet here we have Tamar, probably a Canaanite, Rahab, a Canaanite, Ruth, a Moabitess, and Bathsheba, a Hittite, all brought into the family of God. And finally, they're, they're social outsiders. In Pharisaical Jewish patriarchal genealogies, they didn't highlight the relatives that they were ashamed of. They didn't highlight the sinners. And these the women, but not just the women, the men that are, in, that are, that, that are, that are King David himself are all shown... <sighs> to be sinners, to be people who are desperate, to be people who are 
broken and just acting in brokenness and in fear and in all kinds of sinful ways. It's just showing a picture of, of life. And then but Matthew here, in regular genealogies, none of these people would have been in it. They would all have been buried. But Matthew, under the Spirit, he goes out of his way to include them. Most of these genealogies would have sanitized, and if you look at ancient genealogies, that's what they do. Even we tend to want to do that. They sanitize all these bad elements and pull them out. But Matthew has gone out of his way to include these to make sure that we know that this is what God has voluntarily joined himself to. That this is us. That we are in some way all outsiders, that we're all we can all see ourselves in these women and in these men. We can see how they reflect us. And yet, this is who God has come for. This is why he has come. And this is who he has voluntarily attached himself to. I would argue that the Bible does present the cord hard reality of life. We see it right here. The desperation, the brokenness, the isolation, the fear, the fracturing of relationships, the dysfunction of families, and the brutality of our selfish, self-centered pride and the actions that come for it as it ripples out through our friends and families and close relationships and causes harm and pain and destruction and damage. What the incarnation means is that God sees through all of our efforts to sanitize ourselves and our lives. He sees us who we really, as we really are and it shows us that he voluntarily attached himself to that, that God understands that we can't come to him and so he has come to us. And so if the promise of salvation has come to us while we are in this state, then we can know that God is for us. Last point. We can rest assured that God is for us. You know, this tells us anything. It says that we, that we don't need to uphold these sanitized versions of our lives. We don't need to try to strive after a sanitized version. It shows us what we really need is Jesus. And isn't it funny that although one of, the mo- one of the primary means that the Bible uses to describe salvation, even though one of the primary means that the Bible uses to describe salvation as rest, we still try to make it all about work. We still try to make it all about sanitizing our lives so that we can be presentable to God, making a sanitized version that we can be presentable to each other. Isn't it funny how hell-bent we are on presenting these sanitized versions to Jesus and to each other? One of my favorite passages in the New Testament is Matthew 11. It gives, this, it gives us a, a, a view of the humility and the beauty of who God is in his person as we see reflected in the light of the face of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says this, verse 28, he says, Come to me, All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest from your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The whole idea of Sabbath is Sabbath rest, of entering into the rest of God. And we enter into the rest of God because of what Jesus has done for us. And so the incarnation means that God has come to give us rest from this stupid exercise of trying to present the sanitized version to him and the sanitized version to each other. It's this genealogy, it presents this picture of everyone from the highest, loftiest king to the lowest prostitute to the most scared, desperate young girl. Everyone, everybody, all on the same level playing field and the kingdom is open to everyone simply and in an equalizing way on one simple condition that we stop resting or try and stop striving to earn our way into heaven and begin to rest on what Jesus has accomplished for us. Not to rest in our sin, mind you, but to rest in the victory of Jesus and his salvation that he's already accomplished for us. There's plenty of passages that say that we should fight against our sin as if we would a wild animal attacking us with all the ferocity that we would against a wild beast and to hunger and thirst after holiness with all the desperation of people in famine and in drought. But here the key difference is that we don't struggle from a position of self-preservation. We struggle from a position of being already accepted in the beloved as beloved children of God, aware of of what Jesus has done and grateful for who he is and what he's done for us. And if that's true, if God is calling us to rest in that, then that means that God is for us. If God has gone through that much trouble to get us, is it, can we not rightly assume, can we not rightly know that he will then keep us, which is exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. He says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We can know from this genealogy and from the incarnation that God has gone through that much to bring us to himself, that he will hold on to us, that he will see us home, it is no longer our enemy, but our father. And what do fathers do? They discipline, they protect, they raise up, they instruct their children and bring them up into the fullness of maturity, which is what God is doing for us right now. And so in concluding all of this, what does this say to us? How do we respond to this, this reality, this truth? 
It means that it just as God has voluntarily attached himself to our messes, it means that now we as part of the ministry of reconciliation are to go out and attach ourselves to the messes of other people. Even when it gets real messy, even when it gets real difficult, even when it costs us our comfort, even when it costs us our money, even when it costs us lots of earthly things, with, of, of comfortable things, God is saying, because Jesus has done this for you, you now are able to go out and participate in this ministry of reconciliation in such a way where you go out and find messes, attach yourself to them, preach the gospel to them, and love them and strengthen them and be my hands and feet, raising people up into maturity, which is why we exist as a church. We are here, you know, most of you know the joke of our ministry is called Storm Chasers because we're looking for tornadoes. We are looking for broken people. We are looking (laughs) for people who need the gospel. Jesus Christ said, I came for sinners, not for the righteous. And so we're looking for the same. Let this passage encourage us that when we see somebody and we think that it's too hard or too difficult or we don't want to get involved in that because it's too messy or it's going to cost us too much, let's remember this genealogy. Let's remember all these frightened broken people that God has necessarily or God has voluntarily attached himself to and brought salvation to and then let's enter into that joy by bringing salvation to people through the message of the gospel come what may no matter how much it costs amen amen father we thank you for the beauty of your word Lord, we tend to judge ourselves horizontally rather than vertically. And it helps us, or it makes us tend to not see us as, see ourselves as we truly are and how much we need you or how much you've done, Lord. So we pray, Lord, that we would know that the incarnation means for us, Lord, that you know us better than we know ourselves. We pray that you would help us to see that even in the midst of our sin, when we were enemies and when we were weak, when we were helpless, when we were your enemies, that's when you came and incarnated among us to bring salvation to us. And since that is true, Lord, we pray that you would help us to know that you are for us so that we don't run from you, but we run to you. And we trust in your goodness and we trust in your discipline. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be a church that would then bring salvation to others uh, through the power of your spirit, Lord, and not our own strength, Lord. Help us to be a, a humble people who love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.